The problem Paul addresses in chapters 12 through 14 related to the spiritual gift of miracles. No, not primarily. We think it was tongues. You know, tongues seems to be the problem gift. Every Christian has at least one spiritual gift. True, according to 1 Corinthians 12 11. Spiritual gifts are given for the common good. True, that's the language Paul uses. So they're given not for the individual to benefit from, but given to help edify the church, to build up the church, and so forth. The tongues in the church at Corinth were actual languages. Of course, I said yes, they were, remember? I think they were, I believe they were. And the Pentecostal movement began around 1900. Just a historical, yes, it did. About 1901 is when we have sort of the modern beginning of the gifts coming forward in what's called the Pentecostal movement. Um, so we are dealing with the last major division of uh, 1 Corinthians here, chapter 7 through 16 or 16.9. Then Paul has some greetings after that. So, so this is the last uh, major division. And last week we looked at the section concerning spiritual gifts. We started that, chapters 12 through 14. And as we, as I argued last week, chapters 12 and 13 sort of set the stage for the specific corrections in chapter 14. What Paul wants to get to is are the corrections in chapter 14. That's his major emphasis. But to get there, he's going to tell us a lot about things in chapters 12 and 13. So chapters 12 and 13 lead up to chapter 14. In chapter 12, we see the need for the diversity of gifts. The diversity of gifts. In the unity of the one spirit. Paul's uh, emphasis there is designed to counteract their enthusiasm for the gift of tongues. Tongues is included in each gift list in chapter 12, both gift lists. But it's always last. It's always at the bottom of the list um, after the concern for diversity has been heard by uh, as Paul has explained that last week we looked at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 verses 1 through 3 and we observed there what we, what's called maybe called the test of the spirit and Paul wants the Corinthians to know the most important thing about being a Christian is not um how many gifts one has, but what one believes about Jesus Christ. The most important thing, the thing that makes one a Christian, is not the gifts, it's what one confesses about Christ, that Jesus is Lord. And he says, you know, here's how you can tell if somebody has the Spirit, that is, if they're regenerated, if they believe the right thing about Jesus. Um... Unfortunately, in our day, our day and age, we have people that we don't, we wouldn't necessarily consider to be not always Christians, Roman Catholics, Roman Catholic priests who speak in tongues. So the test of, uh, and that's a problem in the charismatic movement because if a person speaks in tongues, they're usually in, they're accepted. 
But I don't think there's too many Roman Catholic priests who are saved personally. You can be a Roman Catholic and be saved because you don't understand fully the doctrines of the church. You can hear the God, you can read the Bible, believe the gospel, and be saved. But if you're a Roman Catholic priest and you believe what the church teaches, that's contrary. <laughs> the Roman Catholic Church teaches that if you believe in justification by faith alone, you are cursed. So if you're a Roman Catholic priest and you speak in tongues, I don't have too much faith that that's genuine. And so that's not the test. Tongues are not the test. The test is what one confesses, what one believes about the gospel, about the truth. Uh, gifts are not the true test of a Christian. Or even if one is a Christian, the devil and his demons have the power to produce counterfeits. In Egypt, they could produce some of the miracles and some of the things that Moses was doing. Not all of them, but some of them. The important thing to remember about gifts, as Paul says in verses 4 through 11 here, that we looked at last time, is that there is a great diversity of gifts. And as verse 11 says, he distributes them to each one as he desires. So now we're looking at continuing this section, the illustration of the body. Verses 12 through 31a. I say here, in order to get across the point that each believer has at least one gift, that all the gifts are necessary, and that these gifts are given for the benefit of the entire church, Paul explores the concept of the church as the body of Christ, as he says in verse 27. This extended discussion demonstrates the diversity of the church, and yet its unity of purpose and the interdependence of all its members. Five lessons may be drawn from Paul's analogy of the church to the human body. First, the church, like the human body, is one. So Paul wants to use the illustration of the body, the body, as an illustration of what he's talking about. It, it provides a convenient illustration. So he's drawing these analogies, these similarities, these parallels. Just as the body though one has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ, with the body of Christ. The last Christ, the last clause, so it is with Christ, is shorthand for the church as the body of Christ in verse 27. Verse 27 says, Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is part of it. And in verse 13, he'll explain how that is formed. The physical body has many limbs and organs, and despite their number and differences, they still make up one body. So also Christ's body has many limbs and organs, and despite their numbers and differences, they make up one body. Verse 13. For we were all baptized by one spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. So we're focusing on this phrase, for we were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body. Paul now explains how we, he includes himself, as different individuals are all part of the one body of Christ. The body of Christ is a spiritual organism that is formed by Holy Spirit baptism. The verb baptized literally means to dip or to immerse. And is commonly is used in its literal sense in the New Testament for water baptism. So the word baptizo 
The word baptize, baptisma, means to immerse or to dip. And so, in this church, we believe in immersion is the actual correct form of baptism. Now, no one debates that. No one, no, no churches that sprinkle or pour debate that in the early church they dipped, they immersed. They don't debate that. They don't say, well, in the first century they sprinkled people. They don't, they don't say that. They just say the, the form is not important. That's what they would say. The form is not important. And so you can substitute sprinkling and so forth uh, and so on. Sprinkling became really a problem, or pouring became very important once you start baptizing infants. Now, even in the Greek church, I understand, I guess they still do immerse infants, but but in, in the West, they started sprinkling when, when you start baptizing infants and so forth like that, when you get away from believers' baptism. So the word, in this literal sense, means to dip or immerse something, but it also has a figurative or metaphorical sense. That is, the idea being to be immersed or initiated into an experience of some kind. As we saw back in chapter 10, verse 2, they were all baptized into Moses. That is, they were initiated, they were identified with Moses in the cloud and in the sea. In Mark 10, 38, I'm just trying to show you examples of the metaphorical use of baptism. Remember, they were on their way to Jerusalem. Jesus took the twelve aside and said, told them what's going to happen to him. We're going to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and teachers of the law. They'll condemn him to death and hand him over to the Gentiles. They'll mock and spit on him, flog him, kill him. Three days later, he'll rise. James and John came to him and said, Teacher, let, us one, let one of us sit at your right hand and the other at your left in glory. Jesus said, you don't know what you're asking. Jesus said, can you drink the cup I drink? Not the literal cup. Can you drink the cup? Can you experience what I'm going to experience? Can you drink the cup? Can you be baptized with the baptism I'm going to be baptized with? Which is the cross. The death and all that. Can you Can you endure that? We can, they answered. Oh, yeah. I'm sure. <laughs> you know, they just shot. Oh, yeah. yeah that's nothing. We can do Whatever you do, we can do. We can. Jesus said, you will drink the cup I drink, and you will be baptized, I am baptized with. But a set of my right hand or left is not mine to grant. So, yes, they did suffer martyrdom. They did suffer. They did die and so forth. They did, in fact, experience the baptism. So that's baptism in a figurative sense. And we use it in English that way. We say, uh, I don't know if they say in firefighting or not, but we, or any experience, you could say, the first time you go out on a fire, you got your baptism. <laughs> the first new experience, you know, the first time you do something, that's your baptism into that. You know, that's that's you've been immersed in that for the first time and so forth. Uh, McCune, Dr. McCune says, here's a definition. Baptism of the Holy Spirit is the judicial, objective, non-experiential placing of a true believer into the church, which is the body of Christ. So when we say we are placed in the body of Christ, when we're saved, when we're born again, one of the things that happen is we become part of the body of Christ. The Holy Spirit places us in there. It's not something we feel. We don't sense anything. It's a non-experiential, that's why it's called judicial, experience. Spirit baptism takes place at the moment of salvation as the believer is placed or immersed into the body of Christ by the Spirit. 
The exact expression by one spirit uses the Greek preposition in, translated by here. So the Greek the Greek preposition in well, that's a big chalk, isn't it? Is uh, you know it comes into Latin as in and then into English as in. So it's roughly roughly equivalent to in, but it has a lot of different meanings besides just in. Uh, translated by here by one spirit. Now, what's going on here? Um, what is this? We are baptized by one spirit. And I said it's actually the, the preposition in, but here it probably means something like by. Now, throughout the New Testament, um, this preposition is translated in different ways, but we're talking about the same thing. So let's, let's think back to the Gospels for a minute. Mark 1.8, Jesus says, he says, uh, uh, or John the Baptist says, let me think, Mark. John says, I baptize you with water, but he, Jesus, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So who's doing the baptism? John says, I baptize you with water, but he, Jesus, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Well, what's going on here is we have Christ is the actual, you might say, the agent in baptism. Uh, the Holy Spirit is what we might call the means of baptism. So, think of this sentence. God disciplined me by my parents. God disciplined me by my parents. So, who did the discipline? Well, okay, my parents disciplined me. They're the ones who directly disciplined me. So I could say, if I say in the sentence, my, my parents disciplined me, then in that sentence, they're really the, they're the agent. They're the ones doing the, the discipline. But if I say, God disciplined me by means of my parents, that is, God is the ultimate agent, and the means that he uses are my parents. He uses my parents to carry that out. That's what we have here. Christ is the ultimate agent. The Holy Spirit is the means by which he carries that out. The Holy Spirit then places us into the body of Christ. So, in Acts 1.5, Remember in the book of Acts? I've got it here. Jesus predicted that this same spirit baptism was yet future. Remember, this is Acts 1.5. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Don't leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift of my Father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water... But in a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now that preposition, that with is right there. So here we have this preposition we're talking about. It's translated by. It's translated with. It's the same idea. Translated will translate it differently. But it's the same exact preposition. So when he says, uh, 
John baptized with water, but in a few days you'll be baptized with or by the Holy Spirit. So Jesus, in Acts 1-5, predicts that this baptism is future. I say this is exactly the same idea in 1 Corinthians 12-13. The word with, the Holy Spirit, is the same preposition in. The NIV marginal notes gives the alternate translation in. This spirit baptism first occurred on the day of Pentecost. This is not spelled out in Acts 2, but Peter definitely states in Acts 11, 15 through 16, in his explanation of the conversion of Cornelius, that this, that what was promised in Acts 1 through 1, 4 and 5 first occurred at Pentecost. So what's happening? Okay, this is uh, after Jesus' death. He's meeting with them during that 40-day period. And he tells them before he ascends, right before the ascension in Acts chapter 1, I want you to wait in Jerusalem for this gift my father promised. John baptized with water and you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So Jesus then in chapter 1 is ascended back into heaven. They choose Matthias to uh, replace Judas. And then Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes on the day of Pentecost, fills the whole house. It doesn't say baptized there. It doesn't say it happened there. But it did happen on that day. And how do we know? Acts chapter 11. So as you go through the book of Acts here, you remember in Acts chapter 10, Peter goes to the house of Cornelius, a Gentile. And there he speaks the gospel to Cornelius. Now, he's a little fearful of going there anyway because Jews didn't associate with with Gentiles. And so he's a little fearful of going there. Remember, God has that dream of the vision of the animals, the clean and the unclean. And Peter says, I don't eat those unclean. And, and, and three times he gets that vision. And Peter fi- finally figures, oh, God's trying to tell me something with this vision that, that I can't associate with these Gentiles. And I should go to Caesarea. So... Uh, Cornelius has this vision. He sends for Peter. Peter comes there in Acts chapter 10. Peter preaches the gospel. And the Holy Spirit falls on these Gentiles. And they speak in tongues. This is clearly evidence that they have accepted, that that they have received the Spirit. Clear evidence that God has opened the, the gospel to the Gentiles. You know, these are saved. Peter can't deny it. Peter can't deny it. And so... Uh, when the, then in chapter 11 it says verse 1 the apostles and believers throughout the Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God so Peter goes to Jerusalem the circumcised criticized him and said hey you went to the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them and so Peter's trying to explain here's how I got myself into this situation uh, I had this vision and I was in Joppa and I was praying and God told me to go there and I went there. He, he recites the whole thing about the vision and the animals and everything. He says, while I was praying, these men from Caesarea, Acts chapter 11, verse 11 came. And uh, they, the Spirit told me to have no hesitation about going with them. These six brothers also went with me. So he had some other Jewish brothers go with him so he could have some somebody to say, hey, this is what happened here. I didn't make this all up. He told us he had seen an angel appeared in his house. Send to, the, the angel said, send to Joppa for Simon, 
He will bring you a message. Verse 15. So now Peter is talking to the people in Jerusalem. He's talking to the church of Jerusalem. People who are upset that he has gone to the uncircumcised, to these Gentiles. Now you wonder what's going on here in the minds of these people. Because Jesus has said, take the gospel to the whole world, didn't he? You know. But you get to the book of Acts, they don't really form, you know, the Jerusalem Missionary Society. They don't decide, hey, we're going to go out and evangelize. That doesn't really happen. Remember Acts chapter 8, the Lord has to kind of scatter them abroad. And he really brings in the apostle Paul to take the gospel to the, to the Gentiles, ultimately. The church of Jerusalem is not greatly interested in that at all. They're just kind of sticking around Jerusalem and so forth. So Peter says, here's what happened. Don't blame me. Don't blame me for going to these Gentiles. It's not me, it's God. Blame God. Because he did it all. Here's what he says. I began to speak. The Holy Spirit came on them as he had come on us at the beginning. So he says, here's what happened to them. I was speaking to them, Acts chapter 10. Um, and uh, while Peter was speaking, verse 44, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. So that's exactly what happened at Pentecost, wasn't it? So what happened to Cornelius, you know, he had the same experience as the Jews did on the day of Pentecost. So those Jews who were there with Cornelius said, yeah, this is clearly the work of God. This is the same thing that happened to us on the day of Pentecost. And Peter says, when he's reporting back to Jerusalem, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them as he had come on us at the beginning. When's that? That's Pentecost. Then I remember what the Lord had said in Acts chapter 1, verse 5. doesn't say Acts chapter 1, verse 5 there, but that's what he's referring to. Then I remember what the Lord had said. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So there it is. Jesus promised that baptism. It came on the Pentecost, and Peter was referring back to that. This is when this first happened on the day of Pentecost. That's why we say the church began the day of Pentecost. Because this Holy Spirit baptism places us into the body of Christ, the church, and that's when this baptism work first took place. It's when we were placed in the body of Christ. That's when the church began. So I say here, that uh, with the Holy Spirit, with the Holy Spirit in verse 11 here, uh, I mean in chapter 11, when Peter says, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with or in or by the Holy Spirit. Same preposition here. Uses the same preposition in, and again the NIV use the translation in. So Peter makes it clear. Referring to Jesus' word in Acts 1-5, the spirit baptism took place on the day of Pentecost. So Paul is saying, uh, we're all of one body. We're just like the human body. We have different parts. We're all one. And this body was made by the work of the Holy Spirit. When we were saved, we were judicially placed into this spiritual organism, the body of Christ. The words we were all given to one spirit to drink indicates that as a result of being saved, 
We also experience the benefits and blessings of the Spirit, including spiritual gifts. This comes about because at the same time we are placed into the body of Christ, a judicial work, we're also indwelt by the Spirit, which is an experiential work. Uh, B. The church, like the human body, is made up many, uh, made up of many members. Verses 14 through 20. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. In the following verses, Paul uses a touch of humor to illustrate the point that the body is like the local church, uh, church boy. I added that word yesterday when I was looking over the notes, but I didn't get the D in there, did I? Uh, I just had in the local church, and I was trying to say local church body. So, the point is that the human body is like the local church body in that the various parts have different roles to play. But all of these parts are needed in order for the body to function as a unit. Verse 15. Now, if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not, for that reason, stop being part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I am not, I do not belong to the body, it would not, for that reason, stop belonging Stop being part of the body. Paul begins his illustration by personifying, applying personal characteristics to non-personal objects, that is, non-personal parts of the body here. Um, so he's personified, that is, he's having the ear speak and the eye, if the eye says, you know, the eyes don't talk, but you're pretending like, you're, you're personifying, you're saying, if the eye, if the foot could say, if the eye could say, and so forth. If these parts of the body could speak, they would not deny their own place in the body. If they could speak, they wouldn't say we're not part of the body. Verse 17, if the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing, sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? You can see he's still emphasizing, you can see where he's going with this, these diversity of gifts. There's different gifts, aren't there? They're not all the same, but just like the body needs these different eyes and hands and ears, we need these. You can see where he's going with this, can't you, with this illustration. So Paul begins to apply the analogy. His point is that all the members of the body need each other. Otherwise, some functions of the body would be missing. Um, verse 18, but in fact, God has placed the parts in the body every one of them just as he wanted them to be. The diversity within the human body and thus the diversity of gifts in the church is all part of God's design. God has placed them this way. Verse 19. If they were all one part, where would the body be? If all the parts of the body were the same, the body could not function, the point being that there is a need for diversity of gifts in the church. Verse 20, as it is, there are many parts but one body. Though Paul's point has been out, both point has been out the need for diversity. That's not very good, is it? Uh, to point out, I should have said. 
Paul, Paul's, Paul's idea, Paul's, what Paul is trying to do is point out the need for diversity. Diversity is not an end in itself. That is, though there are many parts, they're one body. So yeah, there, we want diversity, but diversity is not for is not an end in itself. The parts have to function together as a unified body. C. Members of the church, with their diverse gifts, like the parts of the body, are mutually dependent. The eye cannot say to the hand, "I don't need you," and the head cannot say to the feet, "I don't need you." Paul returns to his personification of various bodily parts, but now his point is that some parts of the body that may need to be superior are not really are not really so and are actually quite dependent on other parts that are not so highly valued. Is it getting a little warm in here? Are you okay? A little warm? Hey Gene, hit that switch over there. Thank you. That's good. Just touch it once. You got it. Verse uh, 22. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. Some parts of the body, like the internal organs maybe, may seem to be weaker, but are actually indispensable to the body's function. But appearances can be deceiving. So in the church. Folks with gifts that may not seem all that important are actually essential to the church's function. Verse 23, And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty. And while our unpresentable parts need no special treatment, uh, excuse me, while our, while our presentable parts need no special treatment, so our unpresentable parts are treated with special modesty, while our, unpre- while our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it. When Paul speaks of the parts that are less honorable and, and unpresentable, he is probably referring to the genitals, those parts of the body that we do not present to the public. Yet these parts are most certainly necessary to human life. The fact that we cover them with clothing shows that we honor them. God has composed the human body so that parts that appear to be weak and less worthy are in fact accorded greater honor of having important functions or receiving special attention. That is, God has made it so that we honor parts of the body that seem to lack it. Some gifted people are in the forefront of the church, yet some who are operating behind the scenes, so to speak, are essential to the functioning of the church. See, he's trying to get their minds off this enamor. They're so enamored with tongues, so spectacular gift. And Paul is saying here, <clears throat> some things, some some uh, gifts don't seem to be important, but they are essential to the function. You know, what about the person who takes care of the plumbing? Who cleans the toilets? You know? I don't want to go to a church... <laughs> excuse me but you know who has dirty toilets somebody's got to change those diapers too you know on those babies uh, so I shouldn't go into the details here but you know 
the point is there are just some things that don't seem so important, don't seem so necessary, that are really essential if the church is going to function. If Pastor Ken is going to get up and preach, a lot of things have got to happen in his church. D. All the members are to have special concern for one another. Verse 25, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. God has arranged things in such a way there should be no division or conflict among members of the body since they need each other in order to function as a body. Verse 20, if one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. If one part of the body suffers, it affects the whole body, as, for example, if one has a toothache. And if one part of the body is admired, you know, you have a beautiful smile, it may make up for a deficiency in another part of the body. Um... That was strange, wasn't it? Uh, hmm. Something happened to the thing there. This should be E here. And my slide got messed up right here somehow. Another. Um, each believer is part of the body and no one is, is self-sufficient. 12, 27 through 31. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. Although it should have been obvious that Paul's analogy of the human body in the preceding verses was really about the Corinthian church, he now makes it clear. You are the body of Christ. And God has placed in the church, first of all, apostles. Second, prophets. Third, teachers. Then miracles, the gifts of healing. Gifts of healing. Help helping, of guidance, and of different kinds of tongues. Paul now lists a sampling of those members God has placed in the church, ranking at least the first three in terms of importance, and is in the previous list, verses 8 through 10, tongues is at the bottom of the list, probably indicating Paul wishes to dampen the Corinthian enthusiasm for the gift. Apostles are listed first as laying the foundation of the church, Ephesians 2.20. And an apostle was a specially gifted and divinely commissioned uh, apostles and apostles. So I should say a, a man. I got messed up here. Apostles were, or an apostle was, a specially gifted and divinely chosen man who had the authority to speak for Christ. I should say plural here. Apostles were specially gifted and divinely chosen men who had the authority to speak for Christ. In order to be an apostle, one had to meet at least three necessary qualifications. First, an apostle had to be an eyewitness of the resurrected Lord. Um, Acts 1, therefore it's necessary, this is the replacing of Judas, you remember, after Judas hanged himself. Therefore it's necessary to choose one of the men for one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So it had to be someone who had seen Jesus. 
Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Paul says. Are you not the result of my work in the Lord? 1 Corinthians 15, 7 and 8. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he's talking about his resurrection appearances, he appeared to me as one abnormally born. So Paul is an unusual case. Uh, Jesus chose those 12, then Matthias gets chosen. Uh, but then Paul, you know, didn't walk with the Lord during his earthly life, but he does meet the qualification of he saw the resurrected Lord. He was a witness of his resurrection, as he says here. Um, number two, an apostle had to be directly appointed by Jesus Christ. Mark 3.14, he appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach. Acts 1.2, until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. Paul makes a big point of his choosing. Paul, an apostle, sent not from man nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ. So Paul's very clear there. He's defending his apostleship. He says, I was chosen, I was appointed by Christ himself. You know, of course, the Damascus Road and so forth experience where he saw the Lord and chose him to be an apostle. And then number three, an apostle had to be able to confirm his mission and message with miraculous signs. So how do you know in the first century since you don't have anything but the Old Testament, the New Testament has not been fully written and not really written at all. So, you know, it's hard to know when the first book was written. Some say James, maybe, late 40s, 50. Then the first gospel, whichever one that was. Some say Matthew, some say Mark. Paul didn't write his first epistle to at least 49. So there's a number of years there. And so you have people going around preaching. How do you know... They have this authority. Well, it's by the fact that they have these authority, these powers, these miraculous powers. Jesus called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. Why? Was it because he was primarily concerned about the health and welfare of the people? Well, he was concerned, but Jesus didn't heal everybody. Everybody didn't get healed in Galilee, you know. No. These are the names of the twelve apostles. So these this gave these these ability to do this showed that they were apostles of Christ. Acts two forty three. Everyone was filled with awe at, at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. Second Corinthians twelve twelve. I persevered in demonstrating. This is the apostle Paul. Among you, the marks of a true apostle. Paul says, I, I showed, I demonstrated the marks of a true apostle. And what are those? Including signs, wonders, and miracles. These are the three terms in Greek for miracles. Signs, sometimes translated sign miracles. The Gospel of John uses that term quite a bit. Jesus did these signs, these sign miracles. Wonders. These. This is the Greek word that suggests awe. When you see these things, you're amazed. You know, and miracles suggest power, powerful kinds of things. Usually translated miracles. The writer of Hebrews. How shall we escape 
if we ignore so great salvation. This salvation was first announced by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him. See, this, this is why many people don't think Paul wrote Hebrews. I don't think he did. It's tough to see Paul saying something like this, given the fact that he says, God spoke to me directly. I got my message from Jesus Christ. And this person says, this salvation which was first announced by the Lord was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it. He showed the, the truth of this message. Uh by signs, wonders, and various kinds of miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So these apostles had to have at least these credentials. I say it would seem to be obvious that there would be no apostles after the death of the last one. Presumably uh, John, what we think of church history supposedly, was the last apostle to die. We don't know for sure about that. <clears throat> Roman Catholicism claims that the bishops of the church are the successors to the apostles and retain their authority. So the Roman Catholic Church believes in apostolic succession, and uh, so that authority is passed down to the bishops, and particularly to the pontiff, the bishop of Rome, the pontiff. And so they are, in a sense, apostles. Mormons, you know, have the twelve apostles that govern their church. So uh, recently the head the head of Apostle, the president died, and so they appoint a new one to be one of the twelve. So they have these twelve apostles who are the governing body of the of the of the group. Numerous charismatic groups believe the gift of apostleship is still available today. Now this gets tricky. Um, I said numerous charismatic groups. Um, so, if we look at uh, if we look at the various uh, if we look at the various uh, we talk about Pentecostalism, the Charismatic. Most uh, historians of the movement, and I'm talking about Pentecostal historians and Charismatic historians, they uh, they define the movement into three areas we talked about before. So, Pentecostalism begins around 1900, 1901. Azusa Street out there in the Pacific and so forth. That's the Pentecostal movement. That Pentecostal movement um, eventually forms various denominations, like the Church of God, Cleveland, Tennessee, that Ken grew up in. Ken went down to Cleveland. Cleveland. I used to be in Chattanooga, and we were just 30 miles away from the Church of God in Cleveland there. Um, and uh, Ken went down there and lasted, what, two days, you know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and came back. <laughs> so did he say he was going there because of some girls? I think he tells us, I forgot maybe what the story is. But anyway, he, he didn't last for a couple of days. He comes back. But he was raised in the Church of God. And uh, so you had the Church of God. You had the Assemblies of God was formed early in the 1900s. So you had, these are Pentecostal denominations, now these Pentecostal groups are, uh, it's, it's difficult to say what they believe about apostles. They kind of fudge and, so I've, in recent weeks since I've been doing this, I've been reading the statements of the Assemblies of God. The Assemblies of God have a lot online, some very good material explaining what they believe. They would like to sort of downplay the apostles, but they don't really rule it out in the sense of, 
they say that is in the sense if you if they don't want to say if some fella calls himself an apostle, they don't want to say he's a false teacher or something like that. You can it's very clear from the documents. They would like to they would like to put a kibosh on that, I think, if they could. And they talk about the fact of what I'm talking about here, but they realize, you know, see the problem is if you believe in the gifts are available today, I don't believe that the miraculous gifts are available today. I'm a cessationist. I believe those gifts have ceased. But the problem is, if you're a Pentecostal and you admit that one gift has ceased, you're sort of a partial cessationist. You're in a little bit of trouble there. So you don't really want to say that. You don't want, you don't want to totally admit that a gift has ceased. Because if, 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 there, if there can't be any apostles, maybe other gifts, maybe there can't be any prophets, or maybe, you know, something like that. But the truth is, I think most Pentecostals would, you know, say, would generally think there's no apostles today, you know. Yes? There is a, um, a church, and we have a school called um, Bethel School of Supernatural Ministry. Right. Led by Bill Johnson. Bill Johnson. Um, close one of my daughter's best friends, her parents supported her in going to that. Yes. And Amanda, I mean, graduating from high school, was, we had read books and her texting. Yeah. It's so, it's, it's so bad. This guy claimed to raise people from the dead. Right. But yet, people close to us supported her and it's just, I mean, it's just so important to have sound doctrine. I, I just wanted to put that out there right. because as a mother, yeah. that was a painful time. Oh, I'm sure. And this is, like, this is beyond the yeah. Pentecostal. This yeah. is... This is beyond. So this, this <laughs> yeah. I'm going to get to that, but uh, that's all right. No, it's good you mentioned Bill Johnson. I wasn't probably going to mention him, but... Uh, so we have the, uh, we have the... Uh, assemblies of God. We have we have what's called sovereign grace churches. I don't know if you ever heard of the sovereign grace movement. Now they're an unusual movement. Uh, C. J. Mahaney started this about 25, 30 years, thirty years ago in Maryland, and uh, so he's a kind of a well-known speaker in evangelicalism. There's been his church got into a lot of problem because uh, there was a problem of. Uh, um, uh, sexual problems, abuse possibly. Is he implicated or not? He left anyway. But the Sovereign Grace Churches are unusual in the, in the sense that they are Calvinistic. I don't know if you know what I'm talking about. Reformed kind of Pentecostals. Or not Pentecostals, or Charismatics. That's unusual. Most Charismatics, most Pentecostal groups, Assembly of God, Church of God, they're on the Arminian side of things. Uh, in fact, Assembly of God, Church of God, believe you can lose your salvation. Can actually lose it. So uh, this sovereign grace movement, uh, which came about about thirty some years ago, is unusual. But they believe that all the they they recognize the problem I just mentioned. So if you look at their literature, all the gifts are available. Nothing has ceased. There are apostles. So CJ was an apostle, and so that and his friends would kid him, you know, about being an apostle and so forth. So the Sovereign Grace Movement argues that. So there are uh, there are 
So when we think about the first wave, the first wave is Pentecostalism. In the 1960s, you got the charismatic movement. That's when spiritual gifts, the, the, the spiritual gifts and miracles started creeping into the mainline churches. It came actually in the Catholic Church, the Lutheran Church, Episcopal Church especially. A lot of Episcopalians began to speak in tongues and so forth. The charismatic movement. In 1980, there was something called the Third Wave. A guy named C. Peter Wagner out of Fuller Theological Seminary uh, started what's called the Third Wave. And that has just led to all kind. They, they tried. They tried in some ways to rein in some of the excesses of the charismatic movement, but it didn't work. And then today you have just about anything. So Bill Johnson, you have down in Pensacola, you just have crazy things going on. Just I, I would just take it would take hours to explain all the kind of crazy things that are going on there. So um, the point is. I think it's pretty clear from Scripture there can't be any apostles today. Uh, no one can do these kinds of miracles that apostles... Now, that's why Bill Johnson claims to raise the dead, because if you can raise the dead, you're an apostle, my friend. If you can raise the dead, you are an apostle, and I'll listen to you. I'll believe you, because you can tell us the truth from God if you can raise the dead, but I don't, don't believe you raised the dead, personally, you know. Well, we better stop here because it's 12.05 and we'll have to come back to this next time. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time together. Thank you for your blessings to us. Uh, give us understanding of these matters. Help us to have the right kind of spirit in our own hearts. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.